the most important question that the client often says is, what do I want to say in this speech? Mm. And really, the most important question should be, what does this audience need to hear? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 15th episode of Stuff We Don't Learn in School. My name is Jenny. And I'm Victoria. And today we are joined by a special guest, Mary-Kate Carey. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me. So uh, my name is Mary-Kate Carey. As you said, I'm a uh, senior fellow at UVA's Miller Center, and I'm uh, an adjunct professor in the politics department there teaching two classes, political speech writing, and another class called Democracy Out Loud, which the students named, and that oh. is the 40 greatest speeches, 40 or so greatest speeches in American political history uh, from both sides of the aisle. And we have a, a, a terrific time. It's a, it's a great group of students that I teach, and it's, uh, it's just been a joy. In the past, before this, uh, I was a speechwriter for President George H.W. Bush when he was in office, and I was for a long time, nine years, long time, a columnist at U.S. News and World Report, mm -hmm. alternating every other week uh, with my liberal counterpart. Every week now, I'm on Canadian TV with a liberal counterpart. I'm a conservative. Got it. And uh, and for a while there, I was the uh, co-host of a podcast called Bipartisan, mm -hmm. uh, in which conservatives and liberals, mostly speechwriters, talk to each other in a, a very civil way mm -hmm. about the topics of the day. And I ended up stepping back from that to teach. And so my two friends who were uh, liberal and conservative took it over and bipartisan is still on the air in case you guys want to hear yeah. civil discourse once in a while, you can oh tune gosh. into bipartisan, my, my old podcast, but my heart <laughs> is still there because my friends run it. So, uh, oh, and one more thing is I, um, I had written for president Bush for a long time after he left office and heard many stories about him. So I decided to make a, what was going to be a book and it, it morphed into a documentary and I made a documentary about President Bush and learned how that works. And, and it was great fun. I learned all kinds of stories, which you can talk about later, but uh, <laughs> now I'm a consulting producer on uh, several other documentaries, uh, mostly about speech writing, but uh, I've learned how documentaries work and, and I think it's sort of the next level of storytelling in a lot of ways and a great way to persuade people. So it's, mm -hmm. it's great fun. Learning something new uh, yeah. later in life has been a joy. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. It sounds like throughout your career, you've really focused on seeing both ends of the right. spectrum and really understanding both as much as you can, which I find extremely admirable. It's something that I've been trying to strive to do for a while now. Well, I would, I would certainly encourage it. We need more of that in the world today. And, <laughs> and I think there's a lot of people who are hungry for that. And, uh, yeah. Uh, who are not loud about it, but they want to hear both sides. And it's the people who are loud about it are the ones on the fringes who don't want to hear both sides. So, Unfortunately. Uh, so I think it's a it's a worthwhile thing to be involved with, especially uh, for young people to do it because uh, the world doesn't have to be the way it is right now. So yeah, that's uh, so good for you. That's very true. And I, I'm, I'm assuming that really helps in speech writing, right? Because you want to find the right words and the right balance between the two in order to express that message as best possible, especially a political speech writer. Yeah, if you, if you look at the latest uh, Gallup and Pew polls on um, political identification and how people describe themselves politically, the two political parties are now in the minority and the majority 
50% now. Well, I guess I can't, you can't really say 50% is the majority, but the largest group yes. of self-identified are the independents. And so if you are writing speeches only to rev up your base, which is a minority of the electorate, uh, you're not going to move the ball forward mm -mm. and expand. Uh, you know, you want the politics of addition, not subtraction. So if you want to expand the number of people who are agreeing with you and supporting your policies, uh, you can't just talk to uh, the people who are hardcore in your base. You have to think about that larger group in the middle who are a little more persuadable and open to new ideas. Yeah. So, um, so that's what I teach my students to, to focus on. And that's been uh, what George Bush did. That's what uh, some of the most successful um, political leaders of our time have done are to, to go beyond just the people who support them and, and try and persuade others to change our minds. So that's, uh, that's, what, that's what we go for. And yeah. a lot of my speech writing colleagues go the same way, I think. Not to like steer this conversation a little bit off the path that we had going, but right. I, I want to hear your opinion on um, on the speeches of the past election, because I do feel like some of them might have been a little bit more targeted towards their specific extreme. Um, if that makes depends which, which speeches you're talking about. But um, yeah, th this was a very polarizing election and there was mm -hmm. certainly uh, that sense um, in a divided electorate each side thought that if they could get their side to turn out uh, and be motivated uh, to vote, that that would propel them to victory. Certainly this last political campaign, that they were very much trying to motivate th their own side to turn up. And sometimes it was through their own policies that they wanted the support for. But more often than not, it was because they were saying the other guy's policies were mm -hmm. out of whack with the country. Yeah, And so it was almost a negative motivation to vote. We've got to stop what's going on on the other side. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, that's very effective. That will get people to the polls. So, you know, with the strategy people, what's the message going to be? What's going to get the vote out uh, at the last, in the last final push? You know, yeah. most of that you see after Labor Day. You don't see that early mm -hmm. in the primaries. You see that towards the end of the campaigns. I noticed a lot more um, vileness in commercials in the 2020 election in comparison to the 2016 or the 2012 election, for sure, which I thought was yeah, very interesting. Yeah, it goes back and forth. I mean, um, it's certainly, there were certainly more than our share of ugly commercials this time, but uh, <laughs> you go back, if you want to, you know, go back in American history, certainly the Civil War, <laughs> there was plenty of vileness to go around. Uh, the, the election of 1803, in fact, uh, Thomas Jefferson against John Adams, oh. a very, very ugly election. Uh, so it's it's not the first time this has happened. People mm. tend to forget because we weren't alive in 1803. <laughs> but Fair there's, point. There certainly is precedent for uh, plenty of ugliness in American mm. politics over the years. It's uh, it's just a shame that it's happening right now, and it seems to be magnified because of social media and uh, new things like that. That are you know the pandemic didn't help. You know there was all kinds of extenuating things that made things uh, more negative than usual. Yeah, you obviously have a very deeply rooted passion for politics for a good reason. I mean, I feel like we all should to some degree, but is politics what pushed you towards speech writing or was there another defining experience that kind of pushed you into this field? Most speech writers do not go to school for speech writing. There is a rhetoric degree that people can get. Not every college has them, mm. but there is such a thing as studying rhetoric. But every speechwriter I know uh, did not study rhetoric, <laughs> sort of fell into these jobs. Yeah. Um, and in my case, I had a very uh, 
as they say, a nonlinear path. <laughs> so, Who does? Uh, so basically what I did was I was a, um, I was a columnist at the uh, student newspaper at the University of Virginia. I, I, I was a, co a conservative back then, so mm -hmm. I was writing conservative columns. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, a column is a uh, fact-based persuasive argument in a way that's interesting that people will keep reading and not put the paper down and walk off. Uh, so it's gotta be kind of catchy and interesting and it's on a deadline. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of great writers in the world. Not everybody can meet a deadline. And so if you were to sign up for your high school or college newspaper, uh, not only would a future employer uh, be able to tell if you're a good writer, they would know that you can meet a deadline. And that is worth money to a lot of employers, because yes. like I said, there are some people who cannot meet a deadline. And they don't really want to pay those people. Uh, so uh, I have to this day never been asked for my transcripts or my grades. Uh, I've always had to show writing samples. And uh, those ones that are on a deadline were the ones that got me my first three jobs. Mm. So, so then I got out of college and uh, my next writing job was for a news service that uh, we didn't have this term back then, but it was basically an aggregator where it took all kinds of news sources and we would boil it down to one paragraph about each topic. So it was a political news service. So we were covering the, uh, the primaries in 1988. And we would say, for example, Al Gore did uh, something on the campaign trail today. Here's how the New York Times covered it. Here's how the Washington Post covered it. And we would aggregate all the coverage and it was on an overnight shift, and it was uh, each day's news um, boiled down for the political reporters and political um, strategists. So that was distilling a tremendous amount of material down into something very digestible. The next job I had uh, was on the 88 campaign. I started working for the Bush campaign, and my job on that was called the line of the day. And I would get my writing assignment. I was senior writer. I was not a speechwriter. Uh, I was senior writer for the campaign, and my assignment was Every morning, the senior campaign leadership would say, today's going to be um, education or today's going to be on the environment. And I would look at the schedule and see what Vice President Bush was going to do. And if he, it was environment day and he was going to a wetland to talk about the wetlands and global warming or something, mm. I would say, here's what Vice President Bush did today for the environment. Here's what Michael Dukakis was our opponent. Here's what he didn't do. Here's why we're going to win and they're going to lose. And the whole point of that document, it was one page, it had sound bites, it had factoids, it had statistics, it was, uh, you know, choppy, quick, you know, entertaining. And it went out to all 50 state chairmen in case somebody got pulled onto the nightly news from, you know, Iowa oh. or New Hampshire or something. They would have something from the campaign that was current. It was what happened today. Concise. It had sound bites in it, yes. all this kind of stuff. And I just thought that was the most fun to write that thing uh, because it was on, it was, I had one day, you know, from nine in the morning till four in the afternoon, yeah. I had to write this thing. And then it went out. Uh, I found out later it went to 11,000 people a day, which I didn't know. I thought it went to 50 uh, and it was before the internet. So it went out by fax. And, uh, <laughs> so, but those 50 people sent it to 50 people and you know, whatever, if that's 11, how it got to 11,000. And so then uh, he wins the election I was more shocked than anybody because I joined it that we were losing. Uh, so he wins the election and, and they say, well, now we'd like you to come to the White House. And I said, oh my gosh, to do what? Because I knew that the line of the day was too political. That was for campaigns, yes. you know? Uh, and they said, well, we'd like you to write magazine articles by George Bush 
um, you would be the ghostwriter for magazine articles. Oh. And it would be like, you know, why I love uh, country music for country music magazine. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I said, well, I've, I've never written magazine articles before. And the boss said, well, are you, are you going to say no to the White House job? <laughs> I'll try it. I'll do it. Yeah, I'll, I'll that's a good out, point. You know? <laughs> I I like your line of reasoning there. <laughs> so so I get thrown into this job and uh-huh. I start writing, you know, why I love country music. But <laughs> I would send him little questionnaires and he would fill them in, you know. Mm. And um, <laughs> and so about six months into it, uh, the boss comes back and he says, "Okay, now we want to switch you into speech writing." And I said, "Well, I've I've never written a speech before. I was 24 years old." I said, I've never written a speech before. Why would I start with the president of the United States? Says, well, are you going to decline? You saying, no. <laughs> I said, okay. I just assumed I would be fired within two weeks. Mm. <laughs> and I start doing it, and it came very easily to me. And I thought, oh, well, everyone must be able to write speeches, and they just choose not to. And I have since found out not everybody can write a speech. <laughs> You wouldn't be correct. Choose not to. Uh, I realized part of it is I have a gift for it, and mm. I, you know, thank God for that. But I also realized, in hindsight, here I was so intimidated by the title, mm. speechwriter to the president, right? And yet, as I look back on it now, as a grown-up, I see that those string of jobs I just told you about. Uh, gave me the job skills that are exactly what a speechwriter needs. So starting with being a columnist, it was a persuasive fact-based writing on a deadline, uh, taking large amounts of information and distilling them down at the news service, uh, writing the line of the day, catchy sound bites that'll be on the news. Uh, and then when I was writing for the magazine articles, writing in someone else's voice. And so that is exactly the job skills of a speechwriter. Yeah. And so uh, that's why it came easily to me. As, as Malcolm Gladwell would say, you know, I, I put in my 10,000 hours. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and, and looking back on it, if I had a 24-year-old in front of me now as, a, as an employer who had those string of jobs, I would say, uh, oh, you're going to be fine. Yeah. You'll know how to write a speech. And, and that's why I think I was able to, you know, fall into it and be okay. So my advice often to young people is don't worry about the titles. Think about all the job skills that are transferable to what you really want to do and, and be open to saying yes. And uh, there's, there's no guarantee that you're not going to fail, but you won't know until you try. And, uh, mm. and so that's, that's what I did is I just give it a, okay, I guess I'll try this. And, uh, <laughs> and it worked out great. So so it's kind of a long story, but that's that's how I got into speech writing. Wow. That is a story for sure. Oh, my gosh. That is yeah. so cool to Just hear. the way everything kind of worked yeah. out. You, in some ways, you know, I think it's something that women do a lot is uh, I said, oh, my gosh, I'm so lucky. I can't believe I got this job. But, but it's not but, luck. You know, I don't say that anymore because mm-hmm. I do think you make your own luck. And yes. I worked really hard. And since then... For the last 25 years, I've continued to write speeches for people. And I would I would say to the young people listening to this uh, to consider being speechwriters because uh, you can now do it from anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. You, you, uh, you can watch people on YouTube. You can do your research on Google. You, can, you don't have to necessarily be in an office. Uh, it's very family friendly. And uh, the type of people who hire professional speechwriters are usually very uh, successful, 
interesting people with fascinating stories. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating way to make a living. Yeah, it's incredibly cool that uh, you're able to channel these people who are really successful and really good at what they do and have a lot of knowledge, like you said, and capture their voice and create a message and persuade people based on that. So we want to ask, how do you how do you do that? Is there a specific process of getting to know the person you're writing for and being able to cater towards their specific speaking style and their preferences and tendencies? Yeah, a lot of it starts with um, sitting down and interviewing the person and talking to them uh, for two reasons. One is as you're as you're interviewing them, you're listening to the way they speak and their word choices and. Uh, you know, do they talk in, in long sentences, short sentences, you know, uh, like I said, the vocabulary, the tone, things like that. But also you're listening uh, as you ask the questions, you, you're trying to find out the way they think. And just because, uh, when, and we do this in my speech writing classes, uh, I structure an argument a certain way in my head based on my life and my experiences, but that doesn't mean the person I'm writing for does it the same way. Mm-hmm. So you got to get to know them. Because, uh, you know, one of my speech writing friends says the best way to get a speech back from a client is where they've written all over the margins and they've been adding stuff, all this little teeny handwriting everywhere. Um, Because to me, that means you you hit a nerve, you connected with them and they said, oh, yeah, that sparked an idea here. Let me keep going. Right. Let me give you more. Right. Uh, The worst is when you just get a big X across (laughs) the page. And because um, then when you're, you're like, now what am I supposed to do? Yeah. Yeah, that didn't work, right? <laughs> and, um, and so one of my speechwriting buddies said that when you get the big X across the page, um, the person oftentimes will say, uh, this doesn't sound like me. And really what they're saying is, this doesn't think like me. Yes. Uh, oh. I would never make this argument. Yes. Yeah. I wouldn't go down this path. Therefore, I'm putting a big X on it, mm-hmm. you know? And so, so that's the process of getting to know someone and figuring out the way they think. Uh, it is, it's over the years, I've realized it's far more useful. If I have to write, say, um, a state of the industry speech for a uh, trade association or a, a big CEO who's talking to their industry, I, it's not worth my time or their paying my time uh, for me to look up everything to know about that industry uh, and, uh, and for me to figure out what the future of the industry is. This person I'm writing for is in that position because they know that answer and that's why they're leading yeah. that industry. Yes. So what, so it's far more useful if they will sit on a long plane ride and just type out a stream of consciousness. Here's all the things I see going on in this industry, right? doesn't have to be in paragraph form, be horrendous grammar. I don't care. Mm. All lowercase, whatever. <laughs> it just has meat. to be like information. Yes. Right. And then, and then what I can do is turn it into a structure that is uh, useful for people to listen to, memorable, uh, transferable to other people. If someone mm-hmm. said, what did that guy just say? You want the audience member to say, oh my gosh, he made three points. Let yes. me tell you what they were. And so that's the process for figuring out, uh, not looking up the meat, but uh, getting to know the person to make it resonate and make it be uh, something persuasive and memorable to the audience. You make the filet mignon. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. That, you know what, that makes sense. And would you say that your favorite part of speech writing is the end product and watching them speak or writing it? 
when it goes well, <laughs> the product is delightful. Mm. When it doesn't go well, it's it's one of the most horrifying things you, you can imagine. Yeah, so, I can't imagine. Hopefully, it goes well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so usually, it's it's uh, it's always a, a good journey, a good process. Mm-hmm. A lot of times in the interviews, um, as you're working on the speech, they'll tell you all kinds of really cool stuff yeah. that that you might not be able to use for this speech, but yeah. maybe in the future. So that adds to the the sort of fun of it is uh, the crazy stories that come out during these interviews, and you say, okay, we can't use that for this speech, but that's a good story, yes. you know. And we'll keep that uh, in so there for later. It's joyful, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I know we have had our fair share of um, bad speeches. <laughs> Both of us are in um, are in speech and debate, and oh, we do. I don't know if you're familiar with the event. It's called Original Oratory. Basically, no. we write and memorize and deliver a 10 minute speech on anything that we want. And they're typically- That's a long time to memorize. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, 10 minutes is quite a long speech for sure. And, but we both, we both are absolutely enamored and love the event so much. And so we love public speaking a lot. Yeah, Um, and the goal of oratory is to persuade. Yes, the goal of original oratory is to persuade the audience to think a certain way about the community that they're in or about, um, different topics and things. Yeah. You want to get them off the couch. Yes. <laughs> yes. They want, the, you want them to give you th- their, uh, their time, their yes. money, their vote, buy your product. Uh, you got to decide before you ever put, you know, pen to paper or fingers on the keyboard. Uh, okay. What is my goal here? What do I want my audience to do? Yes. Uh, exactly. And is it vote for my candidate, you know, volunteer for my cause, whatever it is. Uh, and then you work backward from there. So that's exactly yeah. right. It's the thesis. We always tell our kids whenever we teach them to say, like, yeah. younger kids or underclassmen, like, what do you want to do with the topic? Because they'll say, like, I want to talk about racism or animal abuse. I'm like, okay. And, like, what about it? My reaction to that is <laughs> the most important question that the client often says is, what do I want to say in this speech? Mm. And really the most important question should be, what does this audience need to hear? Mm. Which is different than what do I want to say? Yes. To the speechwriter, the most important question is the corollary to what does this audience need to hear is how are we going to get this audience to listen to that? Mm. And that's where the entertainment side kicks in and the marshalling of arguments and the all the things that you use. Um, this might be useful to you guys for this contest and, uh, and in the, the things that you teach other students is um, there's something called Monroe's Motivated Sequence. Are you familiar with it? I'm not. No. So Professor Monroe, Alan Monroe, about 100 years ago, I believe he was either at Indiana or Purdue University. I could look it up. Uh, studied all of the most persuasive speeches in in history, going back to like the Greeks and the Romans. Oh, wow. (laughs) And he found that the best ones have five uh, elements in common. Mm. And the five elements are a grabber up top, get people's attention. Got it. Yep. Define the solution. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, define the problem. Yes. Then define the solution. Yes. Then visualize how fabulous your solution is going to be. And then end with a call to action. Now, some of those could be in a little different order. 
Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you see them end with visualization instead of the call to action. The call to action comes first in order to visualize, whatever. But those five elements are in common. Yes. And the way that I uh, tell my students to remember it, the mnemonic device. So you've got grabber, problem, solution, visualization, call to action, GPSVC. So GPS, you're, you're giving your audience the roadmap, showing them where to go. Right, just like your GPS, uh -huh. VC. If you do this, your speech will be very cool. So, <laughs> so that's how we remember it. It's, it's and a good training. That's uh, that. Those are the five elements. When we go back to, you know, what does this audience need to hear, and how are we going to get them to listen? Mm. Those five elements are not something that Professor Monroe invented for going forward. Yeah, he said yeah. this is what has worked in the past. This is how the human brain operates. And I only recently learned this because I was teaching and learned it. <laughs> yes. Uh, when I was 24 and fell into this speechwriting job, I didn't know about Monroe's motivated sequence. Mm -hmm. So I went back and looked at the speeches that I wrote for President Bush back then, and they all have it. And that's what's uh, fascinating to me is Professor Monroe's right. This is how the human brain operates. And yeah. that's uh, so if that's useful to you uh, in your writing, I think it's a, it's a, a time-honored, proven yeah. uh, set of steps that, that really work in speeches. A little bit of a human inherent psychology right there for yeah. you in Isn't public speaking. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't know it. You know, I just learned it recently. <laughs> wow. And another thing that I find to be obviously very effective in speech writing and public speaking is mm -hmm. confidence. Right. Confidence oh, yeah. in the speaker and the speech writer, I would assume as well. And that's what I see a lot of people lack whenever it comes to public speaking. That's where I see the faults in why people fear public speaking so much because they simply don't have the confidence in their own words or the words that they're supposed to be speaking and how the audience is going to interpret those words. So yeah, there's two, there's two ways to fix that. One is through the writing and one's through the delivery. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you're, working hard enough to structure a written speech, and you're not just talking ad lib, right? Mm. Uh, you're already better off than somebody who's just up there winging it. Yes. Uh, one, of, one, of our, <laughs> one of our things in our class is the 10 worst ways to end a speech. Ooh, do tell. You want to hear number one? Yes. Yeah. The, the absolute worst of all time would be to end a speech with the phrase, so like, yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yes. I agree. You do not want so like, yeah, at the end of a speech. Okay. I, if I could get a penny for the number of times in school presentations where a person ended a presentation with, so, so yeah, I would be a millionaire. I could buy a Tesla. The I worst. swear. Okay. Yes. So that's one way to increase your confidence is to do the things we were just talking about. Yes. <laughs> Structure a well-written speech, mm. uh, edit it, do, never deliver your first draft. It can always be improved. Mm. The second draft's going to always be better than the first draft. Yes. Uh, so that sort of thing, the writing end of it will vastly improve your confidence if you know you are going to the podium with something that is solid. Mm -hmm. And then the second is on delivery, my two tips would be Practice, 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 especially if it's an emotional speech. Yes. This is where you see, um, for example, eulogies, uh, you know, anything that is going to tug at your heartstring. Ronald Reagan had this great trick. It sounds kind of heartless, but you, you practice it until the words don't mean anything. Yeah. 
Yes. And you can deliver it without losing it yourself. I think we um, both. You always want the audience laughing and crying, but it's hard if it's emotional to get through if this is the first time you've seen this. Yeah. Uh, you want to bring it to the podium after you've seen it 25 million times. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the second part is when you've got the speech the way you want it and you're ready to deliver it, Churchill, Winston Churchill, had this trick that um, I use myself. I use it on all my clients. And it is if you take the speech to the podium and it is written out in the same way that you would write a a term paper or a magazine article, if it's in full paragraphs across the page, double-spaced, right? And you are not confident enough to, to, if you're nervous, you're just gonna read it, right? If you guys can memorize it, I don't think I could memorize it. <laughs> but if you're not memorizing, if you've got, if you're going up there with a text, mm. you're tempted to just read it because it looks like a newspaper yes. article or a magazine article, right? Yeah. So what you do is, you format it in advance. This is what Churchill did. Um, it, and it looks like poetry. So think of like, um, Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. Or, you know, uh, twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder where you are. Yes. That's how the speech is laid out in phrases like that. Yeah. Uh, and you don't have to delete any words. You still got all your words. Mm. Now it's going to make your, your page count go very high. <laughs> 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 all the spaces page numbers yes on the pages that's very yeah. important uh so that if you drop your speech <laughs> you know where you are you, you can find your way some, back you need some page numbers mm. uh, but that will and if you if you uh only have this prose sort of you know poetry sort of format mm. and you only go down three quarters of the way down the page so when you're standing at the podium your chin should not touch your chest so look down yeah. at the bottom of the page. Yeah. You want to keep your chin up. Yeah. So you're only using half to three quarters of the page. So you're only seeing the top part of the page. Huh. And if you just look down and grab these phrases with your eye, you'll be able to make more eye contact with the audience. You won't look like you're reading. Mm -hmm. And it'll give you more confidence because you'll be standing up straighter. And you'll be, you know, like I said, uh, your eye can catch these phrases. You're not doing left to right all the way across the page. Yes. And, uh, and it really seems to help. It certainly helped me. And um, I would highly recommend it as a, a formatting trick at the end after you've finished all your edits uh, and to do it that way and practice it doing that way. And you could even put the pages double-sided if you have a printer that can do that. Uh, and so that you're not rustling through quite so many pages. You can you know, do two, two pages at a time facing each other. That is actually so, a very, very helpful tip. Hope that's useful. But yeah. that helps with confidence because... Sometimes confidence can really be helped by these external uh, uh, props that help yes. us say, oh, that, oh, that makes it better. I can do this, you know. Exactly. Uh, sometimes confidence just has to come from within. But yeah, that's uh, if, fair. You can, if you can do everything else on the outside that helps, you'd be surprised how much Fake job, it till you make it, you know. You got to just <laughs> fake it till you make it. I mean, that's how I learned confidence in, um, in public speaking. Mm -hmm. Truly. Yeah. yeah, I think you know, a lot of people do that. <laughs> I think I think a lot of it also comes down to practice, which you mentioned, but I think it's so overlooked where like public speaking, especially maybe also with art, artistic stuff, mm. it's always seen as like you either have it or you don't. But so often, like if you 
give it enough times, if you deliver it enough Believe times. Me, it can be learned. Yes, exactly. And the more you do it, the less nervous you get. Yes. Yeah. And I'm living proof of that. <laughs> I, was, you- I was a speechwriter for the president when one of my colleagues had to cancel on an eighth grade graduation commencement speech <laughs> and asked if I would fill in for him. <laughs> and here I was telling everybody all the time, oh, you'll be fine. Don't worry about a thing. Just give this speech, you know? And uh, I had to get up and give a speech. I was shaking like a leaf. Yes. And it was an eighth grade commencement. (laughs) And that's when I realized, oh my gosh, what have I been telling my clients? (laughs) And uh, I I started giving more and more speeches. I learned a lot of tricks Mm -hmm. and uh, I am not a nervous speaker anymore at all. And then I am living proof that the more you do it, the easier it gets. Yes. Practice, practice, practice. And also, like, with practicing, the best piece of advice I've been given for delivery, whether it's, like, competitively and someone's trying to rank you and see who who touched them more, or whether it's just, like, personally is, um, like, oftentimes I've felt pressured to to be a certain type of speaker, to have a Mm -hmm. certain type of charisma, whatever that Mm -hmm. looks like, whether that's, you know, making very, like, smart, witty jokes or, like, when my humor is probably more sarcastic or less, like, more deadpan. Um, Mm -hmm. They told me, like, the best uh, way you can become the best speaker is doing you the best you can and going to that extreme rather than trying to. That is exactly right. Yeah. And trying to be someone else or whatever you think is a version of a better speaker. And I thought that was really interesting to take in. The the best speech is the one that is the best you. Yeah. Yeah, That's exactly right. Good, Great advice, whoever gave that to you. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, one of the things... Um, you know, this is a speechwriter's idea of a good time is to take <laughs> a speech, right? And uh, and put your hand over the top of it that says who gave it where and when, right? And read the speech and see if you can say, oh, that is Barack Obama at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial in 2008. No right? way. Yeah. Because Wait. if you can do that, it means the speechwriter accurately captured that person's voice at that moment in that place and time and that that person was the only one who could have given that speech yeah if you have a speech full of boilerplate blah 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 (laughs) that anybody could give uh you have failed as a speechwriter and so the best speeches are the ones that are only that person could give in that moment because they're full of stories from that person's life or talking about that moment in time Mm -hmm. and why they are the only person with this particular, you know, viewpoint on it. And that's what makes the best speeches. So to your point, Victoria, that's, that's what is capturing, you know, the authenticity, the the perspective, the voice of a person when they give a speech is something that no one else could deliver. They'd have to change it to make it about themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We always try to answer, I think, why you, why now, and why right. speaking as opposed to some other form. Yep, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Because yeah. that means it's not boilerplate. Yeah. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about your class at UVA. You mentioned a lot of it throughout the interview, but how do you structure it? Because it sounds like such a great yeah. course to take. Like, I would, love, I would to. love to take it. I'm learning so much right now. I want to <laughs> share this with everybody. Wow. Well, we um, it's small. It's, it, the, the speech writing class is uh, 20 kids. Mm-hmm. And um, most of them want to be speechwriters. So they're sort of, you know, self-selecting. <laughs> it's not it's somebody, you know, but Telling there them. are, yeah. there have been people in my, um, in my other class with the greatest speeches 
of all time who were from other majors. So for example, we had an engineer in that class and when we did Space Week with all the speeches about the American adventure into space, uh, he gave a presentation on how a rocket ship gets into space. And, uh, and so that was interesting. <laughs> but, the, but the speech writing class, um, we, we go through a lot of exercises that are really fun. We have, for example, um, one exercise is called Give Me Back My Stuff. And uh, <laughs> so you have to pretend to steal something of value from the other person. And then you have two minutes to convince them to give it back. And then we go around the room and say, did you get your stuff back? What was the argument that persuaded you to, you know, persuaded the other person to give yes. it back? And, um, and then we analyze the argument. And you say, is it ethos, logos, or pathos, mm. which are the three classic yeah. Greek ways of persuasion. Mm. Uh, ethos um, is, is uh, going to the credibility of the speaker. Uh, pathos is emotion. Uh, and logos is uh, logic and reason. Mm. And so, for example, if, um, if you took my bank account uh, from me, my <laughs> savings account, um, uh, a, a pathos argument would be, oh, but my, um, my, my dog is dying and I need the money to pay the vet bills yeah. to keep the dog alive. Yeah. Couldn't you please give me the money back? <laughs> <laughs> of course I would and they give the money back. Yeah. Uh, if you instead said, um, you know what? If you don't give me my money back, I am going to um, mug you as soon as we get out of class and you'll have three uh, broken bones. Right? <laughs> well, that would be <laughs> logos because that's a... A, a consequence, Logically. a logical consequence of yeah. a threat, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we figure out who uh, who used which arguments, uh -huh. and um, and the point of the of the uh, exercise is to say if your go to argument, if you have two minutes in this exercise, and you went to an emotional argument, uh, that's fine. That doesn't mean the person you're writing for would do that. Right. And you have to know them well enough to know. Would they also make a similar argument or would they go for a, a, a logos argument if you did pay those, right? Yes. And, um, and then the final uh, exercise for the whole semester is very few speechwriters get to write speeches for themselves. Um, so they got paired up and they had to write a speech for one of their classmates. And I purposely picked a classmate that I thought they would disagree with. I like that. Uh, oh, yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. So to have to write a speech for someone on a topic that you don't necessarily agree with mm. uh, was part of the challenge. What? So uh, a part of their grade was for the speech they wrote for someone else, but then someone else wrote them a speech and they have to deliver it. So 50% of the grade is delivery and 50% is the speech you wrote for oh, someone else. I no really way. like that. I fun? very, very much like to give that. our own speeches. Yeah. Wow. That is, yeah. that's such a good activity. I and want that, to do that in my yeah. class. Yeah. 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 I have to bring that up to, to my English teacher. Exactly. <laughs> and this, yeah, you got to put on someone else's hat. It's a, yeah. it's, it's, uh, and especially in this day and age where uh, people think if someone disagrees with you, you know, they're evil mm. uh, and they're not evil. And there's all kinds of perspectives on many different public policy questions and mm -hmm. Writing for someone else's perspective is very healthy, I think, and yes, uh, and can help in these polarized times. And how do you think we can mirror this in younger classrooms, not just higher education, but within like middle school, elementary school, and high school? Because the more I am like taking a step back from mm -hmm. doing things like speech and debate, which have 
given me the opportunity to to think about things like this, the more I realize, like whether it's you know talking to a friend and convincing them, no, let's go to another restaurant, <laughs> or like, <laughs> or like right. doing something a little bit more large uh-huh. scale. Like persuasion is at the core of so like so many things. It's um, it, no matter what you what you do in life. I can't think of a single uh, field you know in in the working world or walk of life uh, where you don't at some point need to know how to persuade people. Yeah. yeah. And um, whether that's professionally or just being a parent, <laughs> being a, a teenager asking for the car, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, it's, it's a very useful life skill and I, I hope more schools start teaching it. Um, you know, one thing we do that, that would work in younger classrooms, which was really fun is, um, so the first day of class in the speech writing class, um, I want to make sure that everyone, uh, feels welcome and starts to get to know each other and thinks that they, you know, should be there. I I've heard stories where people show up for the first day of class and think, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. Mm -hmm. I'm not smart enough to be here or whatever. Mm. And uh, so what I do is I give them um, 10 minutes. They pair up in twos. Uh, they have 10 minutes to interview each other, get to know each other a little bit. And then each one has to stand up and nominate the other person for president of the United States. And they have to do it in a paragraph. They can't go on for two hours. <laughs> uh, uh, but one paragraph on why this person should be the next president of the United States. And that way you're not nominating yourself for president no. so you're not bragging Mm-mm. someone else is bragging about you yes and um and you have to tell them enough of where you're from or you know what your skills are that they get a good sense for you and it's usually very funny that's yeah. so good people come up with all kinds of funny yes. things and yes. and they don't know each other that well so they say well <laughs> you know my new best friend here needs to be <laughs> And, um, my strong and, acquaintance right, that right, I met five minutes ago. Up and talking, so they're used to standing up in class. Yeah, uh, they have to make a one paragraph argument that's persuasive, and uh, and do it in a way that's funny and uh, you know gets people to know each other. And, uh, and so it's a great icebreaker. Yeah. And, and so you could use that. You know, that's a that's something any anybody could do. You know, a fourth grader could nominate the person next to him. <laughs> yeah. Gotta have a few good reasons. So uh, yeah. he likes so, ice cream <laughs> specifically. <laughs> exactly. So I feel like you have so many different tricks and icebreakers and games that you play in um, yeah. in the class just to get people liking speech writing and public speaking. Yeah, it's in my best interest to get as many young people to be speech writers as possible mm-hmm. uh, because uh, we want the field to grow. We want uh, good people coming in. And uh, it's like I said, it's a great way to make a living. And I think uh, speechwriters can really uh, help change the tone in politics. Yes. Uh, just because politics is the way it is right now mm-hmm. doesn't mean it was this way all the time. And it doesn't mean it, it doesn't, it doesn't have, have to stay to. this way. Yeah. Uh, so if you're the kind of person who's concerned about polarization and the tone, and as you said earlier, the vileness in politics, uh, becoming a speechwriter can help change that. And and so that's why it's in my best interest, all of our best interest to have uh, as many good people going into speechwriting as possible, uh, you know, to keep our democracy strong, keep our country moving forward, yeah. not turning into one big argument. And yeah. which- well, I shouldn't say that. Arguments are good. I mean, honestly, well, fistfights and arguments go back and forth. I feel like at this point, there is no back and forth. It's just death 
screaming. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and listening, listening. Uh, Speechwriters need to be good listeners. Yes. And, uh, but we could all use, even if you're not a speechwriter, listening is becoming a lost art. And hopefully yeah. bring that back too. Yeah. And like with training the new generation of speechwriters, with the future, with like social media, like we talked about a little bit earlier mm. and like algorithms or filter bubbles or just how accessible a one-liner can be and how quickly it can just spread and everyone knows about yep. that line that, that someone wrote about. Mm. How do you think that changes the, the ecosystem of like writing speeches and delivering messages and whether it's for political figures or other people? Well, there's been a tremendous amount of, of discussion on these sort of speech writing panels and, you know, different professional speech writer organizations about the effect of social media on speech writing. And uh, there is certainly a whole subset of people, uh, depending on the industry and whether it's in politics or, or outside of politics, of sort of the um, search engine optimization crowd that want to embed certain words in the speeches so that they are searchable uh, and, and findable on, on Google. Yeah. Um, but there's, and, and there's also more that can be done. Uh, for example, if you look at Ted talks, um, um, Ted talks do something very interesting that I wish more people did with their speeches is, uh, they, they take the speeches and they crowdsource, uh, translations into dozens of languages. People just volunteer to, to translate TED Talks into many languages. Uh, they also uh, break up the TED Talk with timestamps yeah. and uh, chunks of the TED Talks mm -hmm. so that you could share just one paragraph and put it on yeah. your Facebook page if there's one point that somebody makes in a TED Talk that you like. So they make it shareable in bite-sized nuggets. Mm. And so that is um, part of the, 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 the age-old challenge of speech writing is that many times your primary audience is in the room that you're speaking. The secondary audience is often outside of the room and there could be multiple secondary audiences. And so as you're writing the speech, you have to be conscious. And many times before you ever start writing, you make a list of all the audiences to make sure that everybody's getting something that they're looking for out of this speech. Yeah. And so uh, so, the, so since the beginning of time, uh, you have to be conscious of the secondary audience is often bigger than the what's the primary audience mm -hmm. in the room. And so social media has only magnified that secondary audience mm -hmm. uh, to make it far bigger than whoever's in the room. Yes. Uh, so that's the challenge is how do you make it uh, memorable so that people will repeat what they heard? Uh, you make it findable on Google and uh, search engines. And you make it shareable in terms of nuggets, uh, but that that's not available to everyone. That's mm -hmm. the kind of thing people at the TED Talks can do. Yes. But mm -hmm. if there's a way to make it more shareable where you send out or post on LinkedIn uh, your favorite nugget of the speech, uh, that will make it shareable much more easily than uh, all the people who would never have attended or watched the speech in the first place on YouTube. And, um, and so that's so you, you got to think that way. How do you get the people who were not there to hear about this? Yeah. And I, I see so much. Um, I think because we are a Gen Z and we grew up with the Internet, we're a lot more cognizant of uh, the audience that our words are going to. And we're a lot more aware of the ability to share these words with so many right. people. And so I think we're seeing like a lot more 
of our generation speaking on social media and getting Mm -hmm. our ideas out there. But at the same time, like speaking in a very casual way. Do you think this will, you said that, you know, the, uh, the future of speech writing, you would like to see the field grow a little bit bigger than it is right now. But also, do you think that social media has made speech writing a little bit more casual? Um, certainly social media, you know, if we're talking about things like, you know, TikTok and Instagram, <laughs> that, uh, certainly much more casual. Mm. Uh, but, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, there was, uh, the pendulum sort of swings back and forth where all of a sudden uh, Barack Obama was using teleprompter even in front of very small crowds. Uh, it used to be you only use teleprompter if you were in a stadium full of people. Mm-hmm. Well, all of a sudden Barack Obama starts using um, uh, teleprompter 24 seven. Mm-hmm. And that started this whole conversation of, oh, everything is uh, gonna look unscripted when it's not. Uh, because he wouldn't walk in with a speech in his hand. He would just start looking at the monitors in the back of the room and he looked like he was you know, just talking. Yeah. Uh, then Donald Trump comes in and doesn't do well on teleprompter and starts talking ad lib for an hour at a time. And everybody says, oh, that's the end of the teleprompters. Now everybody's just gonna ad lib it. Mm-hmm. Okay, then Joe Biden comes in and <laughs> we go back to back teleprompters. teleprompters. <laughs> uh, so, so it keeps going back and forth, <laughs> uh, but it's, it, there's no substitute for a well-crafted, yes. um, finely tuned, well-researched, fact-checked speech. Um, and if it's delivered in a casual way, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, Mark Twain once said something, I'm not going to get it right, but something along the lines <laughs> of, it took me uh, three weeks to prepare my impromptu remarks. And, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that's, things that can appear to be impromptu Mm. uh, are fine. But my experience has been when they are generally off the cuff with very few, I can give you one exception that I can think of. Uh, It's usually doesn't go well. (laughs) And the one exception I can think of is uh, Robert F. Kennedy, the night that Martin Luther King died. I don't know if you know that story, but um, it's, it's, um, if you guys ever want to look it up, there's a great website called AmericanRhetoric.com, and it is the uh, online speech bank of, I think, 5,000 speeches of great Americans uh, from all sides, all walks of life. Uh, and so it's on there. And it's uh, so Robert F. Kennedy is campaigning for president of the United States. He's uh, it's 1968. He is uh, rumored to be considering Martin Luther King as his running mate. And uh, he is campaigning in uh, Indianapolis, and he's about to go into a really uh, dangerous section of town. And uh, he gets word that Martin Luther King has just been shot and killed. And the people in town don't know this yet. The police are with him, and the police say, Senator Kennedy, we cannot protect you if you go into that neighborhood. We're stopping right here, and we don't think you should go in. And he said, I'm going in without you. So he goes in without police protection. He has no speech writer with him. Uh, he had a previously prepared speech he was going to give. He throws that out. Mm. He jumps on the back of a flatbed truck and he gives a five minute speech wow. on, uh, starts with, it's exactly like we were talking about Monroe's motivated sequence. He starts with, 
I have terrible news for you. Martin Luther King's just been shot and killed. You can hear the crowd go, ah, and everybody starts yelling and screaming. He presents the problem. We have two ways to go. We can handle this peacefully or we can handle it with violence. And let me make the case for handling it peacefully. He quotes Aeschylus, the Greek poet, off the top of his head. What? He uh, oh visualizes how great a nonviolent response to this would be. Uh-huh. And he ends with a call to action, which is, can we all please pray? Yes. And it's it's exactly like Monroe's motivated sequence. It's five minutes long. And Indianapolis was the only town that did not riot, only major city that did not riot that night. Oh, wow. Uh, I was uh, a child in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. was on fire. Mm. And um, so there were riots all over the United States, but not after that speech where he was. And so, wow. uh, so that's... That's the only impromptu. That's, yeah, that's the only well. impromptu speech I can think of. <laughs> that was a, a a big success. Yes. And um, most of the time, you're far better off preparing and uh, it, making it look casual <laughs> off the cuff. When it's, I mean, that isn't that the isn't that I'm the, biased. I'm a speechwriter. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, I can I can say with certainty it's much better to have at least some ideas <laughs> flowing in your head before. Yes. Don't just wing it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to finish it off, we have some rapid fire questions. Okay. What has been your favorite moment in your career? Um, I would have to say I gave, um, I built a lecture on it. It was not my favorite moment at the time. <laughs> I had a uh, speech that bombed. Oh, lovely. Publicly for President Bush. And um, it was a very painful experience at the time. Mm. But it led to um, a lifelong friendship with him. Uh, He teased me about it for 25 years. (laughs) (laughs) I never heard the end of it. Uh, And it taught me uh, a tremendous amount of humility, which is very important in speech writing. Mm. Um, And... Uh, gracious acceptance of failure. <laughs> and so, um, so I, I give my, my last lecture in my speech writing class is about that moment. Mm-hmm. And it has been um, a teachable moment for me to uh, talk to young people about it's okay to fail because uh, sometimes even better things are waiting for you after that. Mm-hmm. And one word to describe President Bush? I would have to say, um, the best word I can think of is, is humanitarian. Uh, and I would say that on, on two levels. One is he, uh, he and his wife, Barbara Bush, mm-hmm. uh, it came out upon their desks that they had raised uh, close to a billion dollars uh, in fundraising over their lives for various causes. Um, tremendously generous people who convinced others to give as well, whether it's through the Points of Light movement or through their own private fundraising for all kinds of charities. Um, and and I, I don't think he's really gotten as much credit as he should for the, the, the relief that he brought worldwide to so many causes and the spotlight he was able to shine on so many people who needed help. Um, but on a more personal level, humanitarian in the sense that he had this great touch with people um, where he treated everyone the same, whether they were the Queen of England or, you know, the the butler. Uh, He was uh, tremendously good at uh, bringing people into the fold and 
making you feel like you were the center of his attention, no matter what was going on. I was certainly the recipient of it many times. Yeah. Uh, a tremendous human touch for uh, the lives everyone else is leading and what they were doing with their, their potential and how could he help them. And so, um, so that would that would be my um, description of him. It, it, he was uh, really a remarkable uh, example to to me personally, and and to many people. And and I I think that would be the word I would use for him is just a, a giver and a, uh, a a humanitarian in the best sense of the word. He uh, he lifted up humans of all stations in life uh, every day in his life. The notes he wrote to people. The, uh, the ways he helped people, the phone calls he would make. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can tell you, I, I've got a book. I should show you. I've got a book of all the notes he wrote me um, oh so many times, encouraging me to do this, that, or the other thing, yeah. and uh, and still teasing me about the speech that bombed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he was great. He did it with a lot of humor. Aww, it was good. That's so beautiful. I really yeah. do love that. So I that, love that beautiful was, That's what beings. I would say about him. He was amazing, amazing leader. And uh, someday he will get the credit he's due yes. uh, as our president. He's, uh, he certainly got a great send off when he died. Um, mm -hmm. He was, he's beloved. So wow. great man. And with that, I guess we'll end off the podcast with some words from President Bush, um, written by one of your friends, Peggy Noonan. And it goes, I take as my guide, the hope of a saint in crucial things, unity, in important things, diversity, in all things, generosity. As always, stuff we don't learn in school would not be possible without our team. Thank you to Samantha Podner for the newsletter, Sophie Liu for the resource, Emma Scott for the digital content, and Gloria Wong for the graphic design.